Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, I have the privilege of talking to the BDD, the best damn deputy I ever <laughs> had, Paige Ormison. Paige did 20 years in the Navy JAG Corps, retiring last year. And Paige is going to talk about the experience of trying to retire and transition from an overseas location. But first, Paige, welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's been too long of a time since we've actually chatted face-to-face, albeit via Zoom. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you as well. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for finally caving into my constant badgering to get you on. <laughs> I know I wore you down. Anyway, Paige, 20 mm-hmm. years, you've been out, what, seven, six months now? Six, yep. And I got to ask you, how does it feel? Still a little weird. The culture shock of simultaneously moving back to the States and becoming a civilian all in the course of two weeks is a lot, and we're still adjusting, but I'm enjoying it. Like my new job, um, the kids are really happy in their schools. They're making friends, starting new activities, and we're settling into the new normal. So I know a little bit of your biography. If I remember this correctly, you were at the Naval Justice School up until about 2013. Yep. And then you reported to Airland where you and I were in the Force JAG's office. And about mm-hmm. two years in, you got asked to go over to Cyber Command. Was Naval Information Forces down in Suffolk, and you were nice enough to let me go. Yeah, and I didn't realize until later that you were Vice Admiral Kohler's lawyer, and I ended up working for Admiral Kohler uh, when I came back from Germany. But anyway, you were there, and then from there you went to the Naval Academy. Yep. Which I think is the last time we actually saw each other is when we were back from Germany one time, and we came over and saw you for about twenty mm-hmm. minutes. And then from the Naval Academy, you got to go to Naples, Italy, where you finished out your career, right? I sure did. And you went to Italy in 19, which means in 20, you (laughs) got to experience Italy in a pandemic. Of course, Italy was at the epicenter of the pandemic. What was that like? That was the biggest leadership and personal challenge of my career. Because unlike the offices in the United States, we couldn't completely shut down because the RILSOs in the U.S. could say, we're doing everything virtual. If you need a notary done, you can go to the bank. They're still open. You can go to the UPS store. They're still open. We were it in southern Italy. The only other notaries in town were at the consulate, and they completely stopped in-person customer service for months So we obeyed the Italian decrees and we did only what was considered key and essential. So powers of attorney for people who were traveling and for people who were PCSing. And we were a miniature real estate closing office there for a while because people were moving back to the States that summer. And although PCSs were significantly delayed, people still needed a place to go. And if they couldn't close on time, then they were going to lose the homes that they were selling, that they were buying and weren't going to have a place to live, or they were going to be in the, the position of losing a buyer for a house they were trying to sell as they're coming back and realizing they're not going to the location that they actually own their own home. 
So we've had to figure out in a hurry about three weeks ahead of the U.S. how we were going to do everything. And the methods that we came up with were adopted across NILSC and in, um, in Army Legal Assistance, thanks to some connections I had on that side. And we got some great support from D.C. You know, Code 16 was wonderful to us, very supportive, and we had really good leadership in Naples. But going full virtual overnight was really, really challenging. We were lucky that we'd had a tech refresh in January of 2020. Everyone in the command got dockable laptops. Up until then, we all had desktop towers that were not portable at all. So that was some lucky timing. We were also fortunate that with one exception, all of our Italian employees had good Wi-Fi at home. And through some you know, major heavy lifting by one of our lieutenants who was N6 at that point, I'll just throw a name out there. Andrew Gilbert is an outstanding young attorney. And he's the reason everything worked as well as it did from the outset. We got everybody up and running, able to do their jobs, and then figured out, you know, how do we keep doing this? How do we see clients? How do we take care of our customers? And how do we keep ourselves safe? Because one of the reasons that Italy was hit so hard is because of multi-generational living. Most families in the United States don't live with grandparents, parents, and kids in the same household, whereas in Italy, that's a really common setup. You know, you might not be in the same home, but you're in an apartment building where, you know, mom and dad and aunt and uncle are in the apartments next door and, and Nona and Nona live upstairs. And that was very much a, a model that a lot of our Italian employees have. So making sure that we weren't just keeping our employees safe, but that we were doing so in such a way that they weren't going to be the vector that got their elderly relatives sick was really a challenge when we started coming back. So, you know, the sanitizing and the cleaning and the masking and the intelligent way of trying to meet the mission and do for our clients what needed to be done while keeping our beloved colleagues safe was really a huge challenge. And I was fortunate that I had some terrific lieutenants and legal men working for me and that I had the best, I had the best Italian employees on base, period. Wait a minute. I, I had the best <laughs> Italian employees on base when I worked. It just happens yeah, to be that we, they're the you same. with the same people. <laughs> well, you know, they are, you know how they are. They become like family. Yeah. But how many months of travel and cuisine tasting did you miss while you were over there because of the lockdown? Oh God, I don't, I hate thinking about it because it was a lot. We got down, locked down March 8th and we weren't allowed out again on, for two full months. And when I say lockdown, I mean, I got to leave the house once a week to go in to work for five hours to man the phones. Because unlike in the US, we didn't have access to Google Voice. So that meant that for calling our clients for remote appointments, they didn't have the ability to use Teams or Zoom. We had to call them from the front desk and then transfer them to their attorney's cell phone number. Because as much as we loved our clients, we did not need our clients to have our cell phone numbers. So that person was going in to be the notary and to transfer phone calls. I got to do that once a week. And I combined that with grocery shopping. And my husband got to go out once a week to do the mop up grocery shopping other than that. But our kids didn't leave our Parco gate. So we're, we were in a little three house gated community. Our kids didn't go past the main gate for over two months. Then we were allowed to get takeout within our municipality. And by June, we were allowed to be out and about in our municipality. So we could go around in Naples if we had a good reason to. But for two years, we were carrying we were carrying justification passes for why we were out and about in our glove box because on and off, we needed them depending on what the, the local case rate was. And they really did peg the restrictions to the local positive test rate. So it wasn't just a blanket, everybody has to stay home. It was very much a, 
cases are going up, it's time to stay home. Cases are down, everybody can come out again. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, open shut, open shut. And the first one really felt like a team effort and it was hard. And my husband had to manage virtual school while I was managing our department and it was not fun. But the one that really did us all in was the winter of 20 into 21 when cases went crazy. It really got loose in the South. It really felt dangerous for our Italian employees, even more so than us, because it was after all the Americans had been vaccinated. And Italy was about three months behind on the vaccine schedule. So being locked down once you're fully vaccinated was just, that was a real kick in the gut. So we didn't leave Italy from February of 19 until July of 20, no, no, sorry, February of 20, right before everything got rolling and then didn't leave the country again for 15 months. Wow. When we did, we drove. Like to tell you, Italy's a long, skinny country. Driving yeah. to Austria is a long drive. Yeah, I think it's nine or nine and a half hours from Lago Patria to Garmisch because I made that drive several times. It's like seven hours in Italy by itself. And that's northbound. But if you're heading southbound July into early August, you can double that. It was good to get moving again. We went out and did a lot of outdoorsy stuff. So the summer of 20, when we were allowed to, to travel outside of our region, which is U.S. equivalent to a state, we went and got a cabin up in the woods in Lazio near Monte Cassino. And we you know, enjoyed being out in the orchards and going to the small towns and not being near crowds. That was really the big thing was we got out and we traveled as much as we could, but really kept in mind like being doing outdoorsy stuff and crowd avoidance. So then Paige, on the flip end, you are now heading into retirement from there. Like I said, you retired December 1st, but take us through your timeline of retirement date, mm -hmm. moving back to the U.S., and when you started looking for work and how you went about doing that and the challenges you had. So December 1st was when your retirement date was. When did you move right. back to the United States? We touched down November 3rd. We thought we were going to be back on the 2nd. We, um, we got stuck in Ireland overnight when crew change went south on the rotator. Helpful hint, even if they tell you at the terminal when you call them the week that you are leaving and ask, is this a direct flight from Naples to Norfolk, and they say yes, don't believe them. Yeah. And pack and plan accordingly that you might have to spend an overnight somewhere you weren't planning on. For the people, it was inconvenience. We were really worried about the pets on board. It was a bit of a mess. But we packed out, I don't want to say last minute, but we, we didn't pack out early. We knew it was going to take a while to get stuff back to the States. And I got two job offers the week we were leaving. So it took from April of 22, when I sent my first resume and cover letter into an employer until the end of October before I had a solid offer. And then I got two in a week. So I can't complain on the, can't complain for lack of choice. <laughs> so what was your anxiety level up until that October when you got those job offers? Moderate. I wasn't super worried yet despite admittedly, you know, a ding in your confidence for, you know, multifaceted officers are, are going to know this. It really does as much as you hear, oh, it's not personal. You're still a good lawyer. It really does, you know, put a ding in your self-confidence. But I knew I was a competent attorney. I know I'm a decent human being. I knew I'd get a job eventually. It was just a question of when and where. And my husband and I had planned for 
the eventuality that I would not have a job offer when we were leaving. So we had probably five years out from retirement started building a nest egg so that we could afford for me to not have a job for a couple of months, you know, at best, or, you know, we could go a year being frugal without having to worry about dipping into other savings or investments. That was just the retirement slush fund. And having that savings cushion really took a lot of the stress off. Because I, I left at higher tenure, I knew within two or three months, you know, what my last day in the Navy was going to be. So I was able to plan for that date accordingly. So when you started applying for jobs, had you determined that you were going to focus on one geographical area of the United States or were you considering different areas? I was considering different areas. We were trying to stay in places that had actual winter, four seasons. My husband and I are both from upstate New York. We wanted to be back in an area that has no kidding winter. We landed in Norfolk, Virginia. So we're a few hours off of our final goal, but we were looking in the Northeast, the upper Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. So the jobs to which you applied, were they based accordingly or did they end up being in one location? The, all of the jobs that I applied for were in those geographic locations. They were with different types of employers, whether it was universities or government agencies, but they were all in one of those three locations. So you start applying, you said your first application was in April, right? Yep. And how many applications do you roughly think you put in between April and when you got a job? I stopped sending applications in September, right after my retirement ceremony. I was like, I've got a bunch of irons in the fire. Something will probably come out of this. But right now I need to finish up all of the administrative that has to happen in order to PCS back to the U.S. and do all of my retirement work. So well, that, is, that is not an insignificant chunk of time. Yeah, I, you know, Paige, I'm a couple months out, two and a half months out from my ceremonies, and I'm looking at the things that I have to do administratively and then the things that I need to do to find a job. Tell us about the challenges of doing that from an overseas location. What were some of the particular difficulties or things you had to overcome doing this in Naples, Italy, when you were applying for jobs back in the United States? On the Navy side, for starters, I was challenged by the fact that it's a smaller base community. So, I mean, Naples is the most populous base in Europe for the U.S. Navy, but that doesn't mean it's a big base. I was fortunate that I was in a location that has a no-kidding Naval hospital with inpatient beds and diagnostics instead of a clinic. And we had a very well-run Fleet and Family Support Center. And I'm not just saying that because my next door neighbor was the Fleet and Family Director. But TAP doesn't happen every week like it does in Norfolk. I mean, if you've got time in your schedule, you can go to TAP just about any week of the year in a major fleet concentration area. That's not the case in Naples. They do it once a month, basically. If the hospital doesn't have what you need, then they don't have what you need. And you're just not getting it there. So either you go without, you plan on doing it when you get back to the States, or if it's really serious, then you may be looking at going up to Germany to get it done at Landstuhl, which luckily I didn't have to do. In some ways, it was easier because with fewer options, there were fewer decisions to be made. It's like, well, this is the month that I need to go to TAP, and this is the week that they are doing TAP, so that's when I'm going. And my PCM was really, really accommodating and was like, look, I know you've got a lot of stuff to get done. I basically spent the last week of July and almost all of August at medical. Like that's just what I was doing. I was getting appointment after appointment. I was like, let's limit it to one malady per appointment and we'll get you in. But it was also getting everything done for my family. Um, 
And because of the lack of numbers in terms of providers, like you've got to plan ahead. We've got one pediatric dentist and that's who all the kids go to. So you have to plan that out. There's one optometrist. So you need to make sure that you're planning around her summer leave. But overall, it was a good experience, predominantly because I had really good RealSo leadership. In particular, my XO and my admin O were very, very active in helping me get all this stuff done and making sure that I had time in the schedule. And when I was making excuses, well, I can't get it done because I've got to do this for work. XO just finally said, yeah, no, we're making your deputy the department head. And as of the change of command in July, you're a helper, but he's going to have to run it. You have to get out of here. We love you, but you have to leave. So get your paperwork done. And the AO was fantastic. Our CPPA, the petty officer that did all my paperwork entry was great. Like it was smooth and experiences, I think, as you're going to get. But that was fortunate. I realized that not everybody may be in that position of having such a strong admin team with such strong oversight. And if you're not in an area with a hospital, it does get a bit more challenging to get all of your medical stuff done. So when you're looking at those last sets of orders, think very long and hard about what resources are there and how many of them you think you're going to need. Like if you know that you have some major health issues, consider very carefully where you're going to take those last sets of overseas orders or if that's a good idea for you and your family. This is a very, you know, very personal decision for you. And if you have family members, your family to make about that last set of orders. And if you know that you're going to have specific family challenges because of it, make sure that that's a team effort in making those decisions because it is challenging. Um, you don't have the same level of resources. You don't have something the size of, you know, Naval Hospital Portsmouth or Balboa or Walter Reed, you know, backing you up. You've got a tiny little community hospital. What about now on the job front, trying to engage with employers? Obviously, you can't network or can't network significantly because, as you've already indicated, you're in a relatively small community, American community, and most right. of them are non-lawyers. We really can't help you. Right. So take us through trying to search for a job over there. How did you do it? How did the applications go? And what was engagement with any prospective employers like? The first thing that was really helpful was the Jobs for JAGS symposium that the Army JAG Corps sponsors. One of the plus sides of the pandemic was that everybody got used to going virtual. I don't know how this would have gone if I'd been retiring in 2019. It could have been a very different experience. But the winter 22 symposium was actually really interesting and really helpful and definitely gave me an idea of what was out there, what the possibilities were, what I needed to consider, and frankly, the fact that I was for a lot of it on my own, like there was not going to be, you know, speed dating for job search. There was not going to be, you know, I couldn't go to the Boeing in-person job fair in DC. It just was not going to happen. So figuring that out and realizing that my job search was my responsibility and almost my responsibility alone was that epiphany that really needed to happen in order to, to get my button gear and get my applications started. I am fortunate that I have a really strong network of former supervisors who agreed to serve as references when I reached out to people, both Naval Academy, when I was looking at university positions, and people like you, when I was looking at attorney positions, it was made a lot easier by the fact that everybody said, oh yeah, anything I can do to help, that's that's great. So 
hard work is its own reward. Work hard for people and they're willing to help you later and be nice because people are going to be willing to help you later. You should work hard and be nice anyways. But the nice side effect is that when you need help and you reach out, people are more than happy to assist in any way that they can. So I started applying for OGC positions across the DOD in May of last year. And I cast the net pretty wide. Like I went as far south as Norfolk. Like I said, we're both upstate New Yorkers and Virginia summer that's that's about to start here any minute is breathing down our necks. And we're a little bit nervous about having to do this again after four scorching summers in Naples. But we knew where we were, how far south we were willing to go what locations we were willing to look. And I tailored the search accordingly. And, you know, I did the work of tailoring my resume for each job of really doing the hard work to make the cover letters good. And I had a a group of friends who were willing to look at them for me. My husband's a really good writer. He looked at a few as like, hey, you're, you're not an attorney. Does this make sense to you? You haven't been, you know, eyeballs deep in the JAG Corps firsthand. You've, you've been getting it secondhand for 20 years, but does this make sense to you as a civilian, what I'm putting in the letter? And I have a, a really good group of mom friends who are attorneys or who are married to attorneys who also took a look at that stuff for me. And something else that was lovely is I was on Jeopardy a few years ago, and the Women of Jeopardy is a really strong online community. We have a couple of women who work in human resources who are happy to look at each other's resumes and give you interview tips. So I used all of those resources that I had available that were available distance in lieu of being able to go out and go to networking events in person. Did you do interviews via Zoom or Teams while you were in Naples? Yes, How many did you do? I think six or seven different organizations. And for multiple organizations, I had second interviews. So I didn't do a single interview in person. All of it was done over Teams and Zoom. What was that like? It was interesting because by the time the interviews started, it was height of summer in Naples and the <laughs> air conditioning in my home office could not keep up. Every single one of those interviews where I was on camera, I was wearing a business mullet, button down shirt and blazer with soccer shorts and sandals. If they'd asked me to stand up, I was toast. <laughs> so I was lucky that we were in an area that was on a hill slope going up. So we got good Wi-Fi through our cable provider. Tim only let us down once when I had to uh, to go to the office unexpectedly to email an employer saying, hey, an ant colony has taken up residence in the internet switch box for our entire neighborhood and the exterminators are there right now, but I need to reschedule the interview for 24 hours because internet is down to the entire neighborhood while they remove this invasive ant's nest that has shorted out the entire junction box. So that's a very Naples thing to have happen, but all the employers really understanding. And you also have to be willing to do it at their time of day. So there were points where, you know, my entire family was asleep and I'm speaking in a very low, very calm voice with all of the doors closed at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, because that's when the employers were available. It was more challenging, obviously, with West Coast employers than it was with East Coast, because Naples to East Coast, depending on the week of the year and who's had daylight savings time when is six or seven hours. West Coast is so much harder. So for people who are thinking about doing this from the Far East, you know, keep in mind that time difference. It really makes it a lot harder doing this from Japan. Now, Paige, I know your pedigree. I know what you've done. But what were the types of jobs with OGC that you were focusing on? 
I was focusing on civilian personnel law because that seemed to be the vast majority of what they were hiring for. And I could say with a straight face that I had done some of it, particularly for the jobs that were generalist, where they wanted you doing CPL and investigations and FOIA and instruction review, where it wasn't exclusively CPL. I was applying for exclusive CPL jobs as well, but I knew I wasn't as strong a candidate because while I had some civilian personnel law experience, I didn't have a ton. I did not apply for acquisition attorney jobs unless they were clearly beginners. Like we don't expect that you have any background at all and we'll train you. The other thing I was applying for, not with OGC, but still within the Department of the Navy and then you know broader Department of Defense was the PEB attorney positions. The what? Those were more challenging because they wanted you to be available 120 days from when the job announcement was posted. When those jobs were coming up, I wasn't available yet. Like it just, it it wasn't going to work out with my retirement date and the waiver that I was going to need. And that is something else to consider. If you are just getting out, not retiring, you don't have to worry about the cooling off period. If you are retiring, you have to worry about the 180 day cooling off period. If you're going back to work for the planning to go back to work for the Department of Defense, it is possible to get hired. It is possible to get a waiver, but you have to be the strongest candidate in the pool. So if they want to hire someone who needs a waiver, the hiring officials have to be able to justify to their HR office why that candidate is by far the strongest candidate in the pool and no one else would be nearly as good as that person at the job. So if it's a close call, the person who needs the waiver is not going to get the job unless they're willing to wait for you for 180 days, which I am good. I'm really good at my job. But that's a hard ask for an employer to gap a job for six months. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, absolutely. You mentioned that you stopped applying in September, right after your retirement ceremony, which was at four o'clock in the morning on Eastern Standard Time, because I got up for it. Oh, thanks. And you got two offers right before you left in November. What was the gap of time between you had your last interview and these offers came in? It's about 60 days. I had second interviews for both of those jobs. And for the job in Norfolk, it was about a 60-day gap. And for the job offer from Bremerton, it was a bit more than that. 60 days, two months. Yeah. Wow, that's. Did you receive these the same day, a couple of days apart, a week apart? How, how quick together did you receive these? Uh, they were within two weeks of each other. And sets so of hiring officials know, like, we're, we're in the middle of a PCS move. I'll discuss with my husband and we'll make a decision when we get back to the States. But we have a ton of moving parts in the next two weeks. And I need, I need a little extra time to make a decision. Is that okay with you? And luckily, both were very, very, very understanding about it. So I made the decision the end of our first week in Norfolk. We got back late in week one. I checked into TPU on like Friday morning, checked, like started my out processing Monday morning. And I gave my answer Thursday afternoon to both sets of hiring officials. 
So externally, you told them, hey, we're going to wait and make this decision when we get back to Norfolk. What were you feeling on the inside? Mm -hmm. On the inside, I was feeling like, well, this is a good problem to have. We didn't think we'd have this problem, but this is a good problem to have. One of them was an official, yes, this is from you know OGCHR. The other one was a someone heard it through the grapevine that this might be coming. And that was the delay was there was a, a slight delay in the actual like, no kidding, you've got this. I did not feel any need to tell any of the other any of the people I was interviewing with that I was interviewing with others. That's if they want to ask, they can and I'd tell the truth, but it wasn't something I was going to offer up. And frankly, I don't think any hiring official is assuming that you are only applying for their job. Somewhat humorously, the offers both came from the same organization and the two hiring offices found out when both packages went up through central HR. So I needed to make the decision fairly quickly. And I gave them a timeline for when I said I would have my decision ready. And I hit like right on the dot and was you know polite and professional about it. And in fact, at the OGC symposium last week in DC, I got to meet the head of the office that I didn't go to work for. And she was you know very understanding. I said, you know, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for giving me time to make the decision. I hope your eventual hire was good for the office. And I felt really bad because they still don't have somebody on board. But she was really, really nice about it and was, you know, glad that our, our family was doing well. So the other thing is when you're making these decisions, you know, be polite, be professional, stick to the timelines that you've given people and be transparent about your decision making, but then stick to your decision. Once you make the decision, you're done, you know, live with it. I'm happy with where I ended up. I was going to ask you, where are you and what are you doing? I am assistant counsel in general law at Military Sealift Command in Norfolk. And you like what you're doing? Yes. I particularly like the people that I'm doing it with. My fellow attorneys there are really, really good people and have made the transition as easy as I think it is possible to make it. Like just really kind, collegial, professional attorneys who want to do a good job for their clients want to make sure that we're all performing at our, our absolute best for the clients and are just really good, smart attorneys to work with who've been you know really patient with me as it's taken a while to get all of my tech stuff. It's a couple of weeks to get a computer and, a, uh, and an account. It took longer than that to get my flank speed back up and running. So I had Teams and, and all those fun tools. You know, it was a real challenge as we worked through all of that. And everybody was super patient, You know, gave me the work that I could do with what I had has been really welcoming. I have nothing but good things to say about the fine attorneys at MSC. And that was not intended to trip you up. Um, before That's we all right. I'm happy to sing their praises. It's a great office. If we have openings, your listeners should apply. Before we kicked off, you said that one of the things you wanted to talk about was some of the challenges with an off-season PCS. And so tell us about your experience of coming to Norfolk in November. You come to a major fleet concentration area off season, nobody is trying to rent their house out and nobody's selling their house. So you need to know that. And I knew that it would be challenging. I thought it would take a couple weeks to find a place. I did not count on it taking a couple months. I had planned on being in temporary lodging for a couple months, like two, three months. And we thought we'd be into a house by then. Two, three months was how long it took us to find a place that we even wanted to put an offer in on. We lost two bidding wars before we ended up with the house that we have under contract. We are heading towards closing. Fingers crossed everything goes smoothly. and We'll be in the house by the middle of June. But the last night that we slept in our own beds with our own stuff was October 18th. 
We were in the Navy Lodge in the family-sized room for two weeks when we first got back, and then we moved into a furnished apartment in Ghent, which has actually proven to be a really good fit for the kids. And we registered the kids for school based on the location of the uh, of the apartment. So we had considered doing virtual school for them for a couple of weeks, like get them through the first semester and then start wherever they were going to start second semester. That didn't work out because most of the districts in Hampton Roads will not let your kids start virtual school mid-year. And the only one who does requires that they do it for the entire rest of the year. That was a challenge. (laughs) The kids were only out of school for 10 school days and we made them do reading every day and we probably should have done more handwriting practice than we did, but they'll live. (laughs) They got two weeks off. Well, we bought a car and figured everything else out. I was fortunate. One of my faculty advisees from Naval Justice School, who later became a friend, her husband was on deployment, so she loaned us his car. So we only had to rent a car for a week while we were car shopping. And then after that, we had, you know, the new car that we bought. And then we had the backup was the loaner from our dear friends, Lindsay and Clayton McCarl. Thank you so much. It worked out really well. Once the van got here, we were able to give Clayton's car back. (laughs) Things really worked out. Like dear friends of ours came and picked us up at the airport. So we didn't have to try and figure out how to get a a minivan taxi onto the base, you know, late at night to, to pick us up from the rotator. Josh and Gresham Sosby helped out. Cheryl Ausmond came with her minivan and, you know, got all of the kids and bags and cat crates and stuff over to the Navy Lodge. You know, Cheryl pre-staged a, a litter box and cat food for us and had like bread, milk and juice in the refrigerator. So our friends here really took good care of us. So when you are deciding where you're going to outprocess, and there's a default on both coasts, unsurprisingly, East Coast, the default is Norfolk. We had a lot of friends here. So we knew that if we needed to ask for help, that people were actually available. And that turned out to be a real lifesaver. What an adventure. Not the Mm -hmm. way you want to go. You want to have that job lined up 12 months in advance, Mm -hmm. but we know that's a fairy tale that doesn't happen. But all that aside, I mean, your story here of sticking with the process and having faith and two jobs popped up on the radar before you even left Italy, which is great. Yeah, you would like to have it earlier, but you had yeah. <laughs> two offers in hand as you were flying back to the States. That's a great yes, ending. And it I'm really glad was. it worked out for you. I'm glad it I'm glad it worked oh, out man, for you. Too. I bet it. I bet. I bet you care about you. Well, Paige, yeah, and nobody's can... gonna care as much about your transition as you do. You have to understand that for yourself, is that nobody's gonna do this for you. You have to do the heavy lifting and craft that job search and get your application materials ready and, 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 and. Well, you've given a lot of practical information. And, and like I said at the beginning of this, I know some others. I know Meredith Werner is currently going through this process as she applies from Belgium to find work in the United States. She's retiring this summer. So if anybody is looking for another great attorney out there, check out Meredith Werner on LinkedIn. And I would tell you to look at- absolutely. I would tell you to look at Paige's LinkedIn profile, but it hasn't been updated in quite a while. I was on there. <laughs> well, I'm going to get a new headshot because Jenny Weingart did a fantastic job on my SDB ones. It's one of the best pictures of me ever taken. I know I need to replace it, but I've got to find a professional photographer to do it. Either that or just, you know, put on a white button down, stand in front of a brick wall and have my husband take my picture. If you're looking for a professional photographer in the Washington, D.C. area, Jenny Weingart, Jag Spouse Extraordinaire, does an outstanding job. Nothing but good things to say about her. But nonetheless, 
if you want to get a hold of Paige, that's a great place to find her. She's on there nonetheless. So, so Paige, thank you for finally giving in to my badgering. It's hard to believe that it's gosh, been eight years since we broke up. Yeah. <laughs> it was a great no, 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 no. It's been eight years since we got together. It's only been five years, six years since the breakup. Well, wait a minute. We got together in 13. Yeah, that's 10 years ago. Oh, God, I it know. has been eight years since we broke up. It's terrible. See? Lawyers doing math in public. We probably shouldn't do that. That's why we divide by one third um, or one fourth of the uh, yeah. recovery. Yeah, there's also one more thing I wanted to say about the planning. You know, the ultimate pie in the sky goal for us was we we really would have liked to have stayed in Europe. But that hiring process of if you think you're going to leave active duty overseas and slot into an opening billet also overseas, you need to understand how slim the odds are of that happening. Of all of the hires in Naples while I was there, and this is, you know, judge advocates and logistics and everything, IT included, I know of one person who made that transition. If you want to stay overseas, you probably will have to come back to the United States, at least temporarily, before you can head back over. And count on having to do some travel, because even if you do get picked up, you may not be able to stay in country while your visa status is adjusted. Italy has very different rules for active duty than they do for dependents and civilian employees. So, you know, keep that in mind if you're looking at Italy. And if you think that you want to stay overseas, you know, there are multiple different options. You know, you can use your GI Bill and go to school overseas. You can try and get hired on overseas. There are two headhunters in Germany who have my resume, but there's just not a whole lot. And if you don't have prior experience in corporate or in-house or large firm life, it's really, really challenging to get picked up by a private employer in Europe. And the job openings that do come up, particularly for attorneys overseas, tend to have well over a dozen applicants. If you're looking to go to Bahrain, it's competitive, but it's not as competitive. I know for area council jobs for MSC, we regularly have a dozen, two dozen applicants for each of the openings. So that can be really challenging. We would have loved to have stayed, but it just, it was not in the cards. You know, I checked the job openings. <laughs> it's ridiculous because we're not even moved into a, a new house yet, but, you know, just keeping an eye out on, on what's out there. On the professional side, you do have to plan ahead. If you think you want to stay overseas, you know, understand that the opportunities are going to be very few and far between. For attorneys, if you have another skill set, you might be a little bit luckier. But if you're looking for attorney jobs, those are not particularly common overseas. Maybe tends to turn over more quickly because our Office of General Counsel limits how long you can stay. Army and Air Force do not. So like the Air Force chief of claims in Germany has been there for more than a dozen years. He owns a house and his kids are graduating from high school there. So those jobs don't roll very often. So keep that in mind. If you are doing what some of my colleagues in Naples have done and marry local nationals and then decide that you're going to retire and live with your spouse's family for a while and that's how you're going to stay, fantastic. Hats off to the people who made that work. You gained a family and another whole culture. That's great. I know people who've stayed and gone to school. That was one of the only exceptions to the local out processing for Naples. The two biggies were if you're married to a local national and you're going to stay and, and live with their family, then you could out process locally. And if you were going to start going to school in Italy, you were allowed to out process locally in order to, uh, to keep you in Europe and not have to worry about where your stuff was going when you're getting ready to go to culinary school or language school or whatever it is that you're staying behind to use your hard-earned GI Bill benefits for. 
I had some ideas of when I would do my last European tour that maybe we would stay, but I'm glad when I, you know, push came to shove that I didn't even think about doing it because, you know, you, you think it would be easy, but wow, did not know all those intricacies of visas and status and all that of how hard it is to to be able to make that transition overseas. Yeah, that was the nice part for me because I was running the civil law department in Naples. I knew exactly what those requirements were because that was part of my department's job was running the sojourner permit program for the Naples community. So I knew exactly what the requirements were to be in the country legally and what offices you needed to go to. Now, Italy has created a digital nomad visa post-pandemic. They're still working on the implementation guidelines. So Parliament passed the rules, but now, now the actual you know administrative regulations have to be put in place and those haven't been promulgated yet. But you know, for people who want to do that, keep an eye out. You, know, you can come work remotely in Italy on a digital nomad visa. Those are, you know, those are a lot of different options. And also for, for people who are doing this by themselves, you know, you get to make your own decisions, but if you are doing this with family members, you know, communicate with your spouse about this early and often. This is financially, logistically, emotionally, incredibly difficult and labor intensive and stressful and all of that stuff. It is just an unbelievably challenging period of time. And I think for my family, hopefully nobody else will be going through this again anytime soon. But because of the pandemic, we didn't travel back to the States for three years. We decided once we got unlocked that we were going to spend our time and money traveling within Europe like originally planned. And until the spring of 22, you had to test in and out of Europe if you were flying back to the U.S., and we just didn't want to gamble on getting stuck back in the United States for two weeks, waiting for everybody to test negative so we can go home. So we just traveled within Europe and we didn't start flying until the test requirement was lifted. So this is something else to consider that if you're going to retire from overseas or get out from overseas, you're making two huge transitions at the same time. You are becoming a civilian after you've been acculturated for 5, 10, 15, 20, or 30 years into this organization, and you have to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life. What do you want to do when you grow up and you're done with this you know, grand adventure? And you have to put a wardrobe together, which is really challenging in foreign countries whose idea of business wear is different than that in the United States. And you have to figure out you know, where you want to live, what you want to do, and you then also have to get used to being back in the United States. And depending on where you're coming from, it is a huge adjustment. The first month back, every car and truck seemed too big. Every person was too loud because for the first time in three years, we could understand all of the side conversations going on around us. And it was so hard to for your ears to filter out, like, what am I supposed to be listening to and not accidentally eavesdropping on everybody else in line at the grocery store? Because you could understand the conversations all of a sudden. Like, it was just all too much all the time. And it took a long time to readjust to being back in the U.S. Um, so becoming a civilian and living in the United States again all at the same time is a big mental adjustment to make. So be prepared for that. I don't think we really understood just what a big switch we were going to be making. This is to say, go into this with your eyes open. This is a major challenge. And if you want that last adventure, understand that you're going to be paying for it on the back end. And this is why you were the best damn deputy. When I asked for a couple of information, I got a bowl. 
you've given us plenty to think about, especially for those that are coming from overseas. So Paige, it was really good catching up with you. And thanks for uh, being part of this adventure here. Thanks for having me. And I appreciate the opportunity to tell people to consider this, but also really keep your eyes open as you're considering this. It's a lot. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.